0: Welcome to the BJA Education Podcast. Welcome to the November 2016 edition of the BJA Education Podcast. I'm Cliff Shelton and I'm Benj Marriage. This month's podcast addresses the perioperative management of patients with cardiac electronic implantable devices with some essential information for managing this group of patients safely. Ben spoke via Skype with Dr Paul Diprose about his article, The Perioperative Management of Patients with Cardiac Electronic Implantable Devices, published in this month's November 2016 edition of BJA Education. So today it's fantastic to be joined by Dr Paul Diprose, who works as a consultant cardiac anaesthetist in Southampton. So, Dr Diprose, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much
0: now with implantation rates of these cardiac implantable electronic devices on the rise it's difficult to remember a time when encountering patients with these devices wasn't so commonplace and i hope in this podcast we can not only discuss some of the electrophysiological principles but also move on to a more in-depth discussion on the clinical importance of understanding this topic and um, so perhaps to start could you tell us what are the indications for these devices and what types of devices are out there that we need to be aware of
1: okay so Broadly speaking, the kind of devices we're talking about here when we talk about cardiac implantable electronic devices are devices such as permanent pacemaker systems, adaptations of permanent pacemaker systems such as the cardiac resynchronization therapies um, and then the implantable cardioverter defibrillators. And finally, a, a small group called the implantable loop recorders, and their indications for insertion are syncope and palpitations, and from the anesthesist's point of view, are not. Terribly interesting, apart from the fact that they may indicate patients who have got some underlying cardiac disease. For standard pacemakers, the indications within the UK population are really a range for symptomatic bradycardias that are most frequently caused by some form of atrioventricular block, sinus node dysfunction, and potentially those also with excessively low rates after treatment or atrial fibrillation. The adapted pacemakers, such as the cardiac resynchronization therapy devices, they are reserved more for patients who have a low ejection fraction. Usually the the guidelines suggest uh, ejection fraction less than 35%, coupled with some form of interventricular conduction block, usually left bundle branch block. So in those patients, there are indications for inserting resynchronization therapy devices. And finally, implantable cardioversa defibrillators, Uh, Usually, the main indications are for um, either the secondary prevention in patients who have had uh, previous malignant ventricular arrhythmias or for patients at very high risk of malignant arrhythmias, including patients, for example, with um, hypertrophic
0: obstructive cardiomyopathy. Okay. Um, And the the rise in rates of implantation, do you have a feel of whether this is due to uh, increased disease prevalence in an aging population um, or the cardiologists are widening their scope of indications or or a bit of both?
1: Well, I think you're absolutely correct So there's a bit of both in there, really. So what's interesting is that in the UK population, we're probably under-inserting devices in comparison to both the rest of the European Union and also the United States. So I anticipate that anaesthetists are much more likely to be witnessing patients presenting for surgery with some form of cardiac implant or electronic device simply because as the UK catches up with the rest of Europe and and the US there's going to be more and more patients presenting with these devices.
0: Yeah okay interesting Um, so that leads us on so maybe if we start with pacemakers um, how do they actually work Um, and could you remind us of how their function is classified
1: please? In the simplest In terms, the pacemakers work because they have a pacemaker generator box that contains a whole load of electronic programmable circuitry and a battery that is linked to then one or more pacemaker leads. They're inserted usually under just local anesthetic, sometimes with a little bit of sedation. Uh, The classification of it is based on the generic pacemaker code, which is essentially made up of four letters. Uh, The first letter refers to the chamber or chambers that are being paced. The second letter to the chamber or chambers that are being sensed. And then the third uh, letter refers to the response that the pacemaker makes in response to sensing a signal from any of the lead. The final letter is reserved for advanced functions, usually to do with rate modulation
0: of the pacemaker itself. The DDDR uh, seems so common. Is anyone still putting the sort of the older VVIR systems in?
1: Well, yes, they absolutely are. I think you're right to say that the DDDR. Inserted now. In other words, uh, a dual chamber pacing, so both the atria and the ventricle are being paced and sensed. Um, The VVIR systems are still used, um, usually in patients who have uh, permanent atrial fibrillation, uh, where atrial pacing would be uh, a a pointless exercise, but also um, they are used in um, uh, patients who very have very infrequent need for pacing sometimes patients have pacemakers inserted because of pauses that happen just very infrequently and in that situation all they need is a few uh, seconds or minutes of pacing to return to normal rhythm again and a vvir system can do that with um uh, it's a much cheaper system that only involves insertion of
0: a single lead um, and you've already mentioned the biventricular pacemakers for resynchronization therapy do you need to treat those any differently to single chamber pacemakers?
1: The only thing I'd say about this from an anesthetist point CRT devices, the cardiac resynchronization uh, therapy devices, are inserted into patients who by definition are going to have a poor ventricular function. So you can uh, anticipate that those patients will actually have more cardiovascular morbidity, usually than the patients who have just a standard permanent
0: pacemaker inserted. Right, okay. Um, And I I remember from my time doing um, cardiac, um, when may you want to use or not use the sort of the AOO or VOO modes
1: of pacing? With permanent systems, it's very rare that the cardiac physiologist will select an AOO mode, but you're right, we do still use that in cardiac sometimes in situations where we have no significant underlying rhythm. The surgeon wants to use lots of diathermy intraoperatively, and it allows us in patients with normal AV conduction to still maintain an output. Now, a DOO or VOO modes, which are probably more commonly used, are an option in patients who are completely pacemaker dependent and who are going to be subject to a high risk of electromagnetic interference. So in some patients who you can anticipate you're going to need a a lot of monopolar diathermy relatively close by to where the pacemaker is, uh, you may choose in consultation with the cardiac physiologist to actually reprogram a device to a DOO or a VOO mode if the intraoperative period only. And that's usually the reserve for patients with very little or no underlying rhythm who, who, as I said, will be exposed to lots of EMI.
0: Okay, that's great. Thank you. Um, So moving on to ICDs, um, how are ICDs different physically and functionally?
1: So ICDs again have a pulse generator box usually of quite a considerably larger size than a standard permanent pacemaker because they need to accommodate a larger battery and capacitors to generate the shock current. They then have one or more leads coming from the box, but the important lead is the right ventricular lead, which will have two shock coils along it. In much older devices, they used to just have a single shock coil at the end of a lead, and then the box would be used effectively as the other coil. But these days, most modern systems will have two shock coils along
0: the RV lead. So, are the, the shock coils are analogous to the pads that you'd normally put on the chest during a cardiac arrest situation, for example?
1: Yes, that's absolutely correct. Effectively, one shock coil lies within the right ventricle, and the other one within the um, superior vena cava, and that allows the trajectory of current to go across uh, the, the myocardium for defibrillation. Now, the ICDs will also potentially have other leads coming out of them, depending on whether or not they've decided to incorporate atrial pacing uh, capabilities as well, or possibly even resynchronization capabilities. Functionally, the most important thing is that they can defibrillate malignant ventricular arrhythmias, but all of these devices now have anti-tachycardia functions as well. So they can be both anti-tachycardia pacing or overdrive pacing. They can defibrillate and they can all deliver some form of post shock pacing because very frequently after defibrillation, patients can be profoundly bradycardic. Okay,
0: and I'm sure a lot of people will have heard of overdrive pacing, but could you just remind us
1: what you mean by that? Yeah, so overdrive pacing or anti tachycardia pacing is a functionality of ICDs. Um, And, in fact, can be used in other forms of temporary pacing. Essentially, in the permanent system, what happens is to try and terminate, usually, ventricular tachycardia, the ICD will measure the cycle length between the QRS complexes. And then it will deliver pacing at about 80 or 90% of the cycle length. In other words, in, in a simplistic term, delivering at just a slightly higher rate than the rate of the ventricular tachycardia and usually the standard way of doing that is to deliver a burst of this slightly higher rate for around 10 beats or so in an attempt to terminate the tachycardia. Occasionally, the other way that can be done is some form of ramp method whereby the cycle length is gradually reduced and reduced so the pacing rate effectively gets higher and higher in an attempt to terminate VT. And a mixture of either ramping or bursts are used and programmed and it has the advantage that it can potentially terminate a VT without causing pain and discomfort for the patient, and also reducing the amount of demand on the battery life in comparison to a full
0: defibrillation shock. So everyone will be aware that electromagnetic interference is an issue. For example, as we've already said, we might request our surgical colleagues to use bipolar diathermy. But can you just explain why electromagnetic interference is
1: important clinically? Yeah, so there is effectively, Pacing system. The one that's less common is under sensing, where effectively a pacemaker fails to pick up endogenous rhythm and then overpaces, and that runs the risk of generating malignant ventricular arrhythmias. What's much more common with electromagnetic interference is um, oversensing, whereby the pacemaker sees the electromagnetic interference as native electrical activity within the heart and therefore inhibits in the context of someone who has an inadequate uh, background rhythm. Now, in that situation, you can end up with potentially dangerous bradycardias, which will obviously be uh, potentially detrimental to the patient. The situation is similar but subtly different with implantable cardioverter defibrillators. And in that situation, the risk is effectively over tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation around um, and will deliver a shock to your patient in entirely inappropriate context where there is a uh, perfectly reasonable underlying rhythm.
0: Mm. And, and if things have gone wrong and you end up with cardiovascular compromise and a pacemaker dependent patient, can you bail yourself out of that problem pharmacologically for you know, example with a, an isopranoline infusion or, or, or something else?
1: Yeah, you know, firstly you need to have a good awareness um, as an of the potential for this, and make sure you're carefully monitoring the patient to ensure that you are getting good capture um, and not over-sensing for some reason. And things as simple as just having a pulse oximeter in place to actually make sure that you've still got a, a rate that you're expecting it can be very helpful. Um, in terms of bailout options, the most simple, quickest, and easiest thing to do is to make sure that the diathermia or whatever other interference has stopped. Um, secondly, to use uh, external pacing if necessary. And then thirdly, I would, I would say to consider pharmacological uh, treatments. But you're right, pharmacological treatments can be used, and isoprenin is classically the one. That people talk about using, but frequently uh, I think a lot of people would find that finding isoprenolin on the shelf is not so easy as maybe it once was. And in that situation, the same beta chronotropic effects that you see with isoprenolin you should see with adrenaline infusion. So adrenaline will be in any, every anesthetic room, and running one of those as a temporizing measure um, is a perfectly reasonable bailout um, option while you're,
0: you're, you're trying to fix a problem. Yeah. Okay, your article then goes on to describe um, a textbook approach to a patient presenting for elective surgery with an implantable device. It's quite a common exam question, and your your article is um, sort of jam packed with with great images um, and tables and figures. Probably a more common situation I find myself in is usually a patient over the weekend on call on the emergency list who thinks that they've had their device checked but I've got no notes, they don't have their card but they're asymptomatic. So from a pragmatic point of view, um, what do I actually need to know or what's the minimum information required to proceed safely?
1: I think the first thing that we should consider is what kind of device is actually present. Um, and the easiest and quickest way of doing that in the context of not having an ID card or any any other data is probably with the chest X-ray, because with the chest X-ray, you'll be able to see what leads are coming out of any device, uh, where they're going, and whether or not there are shock coils. And um, obviously, if there's shock coils on the leads, then that will indicate that this is an ICD, and as such, should be... Uh, deactivated before any kind of surgery. The other thing that you potentially see on a CRT device is the presence of not just an atrial and a right ventricular lead, but an LV stimulating lead, which is usually a much, much thinner lead that runs in the coronary sinus and and on the chest x-ray appears. Towards the left side of the heart, um, and in that situation, the ECG then gets an extra bit of information, which is you know, they've got resynchronization therapy, and therefore it's highly likely to have a poor uh, left ventricular function. The other bits that I would always consider uh, helpful are 12-lead ECG, because as we said before, the um, if we're seeing pacing spikes before every QRS complex, then we should assume that they are truly pacemaker dependent, and that they are at risk of oversensing and therefore um, inhibition of pacing with electromagnetic interference. And probably the other thing that I would consider, if, the, if time allows, um, um, it's some form of rapid test of um, electrolytes as well. I think I would consider those to be the things that you would really want to be doing, even in an emergency situation with very little other information around.
0: Okay, that's great. Is it fairly obvious when these devices aren't functioning? I mean, is it safe to assume that if the patients describe no worrying symptoms that you can extrapolate that the device is working properly? I
1: think it's part of a reassuring pattern if the patient is not getting any syncope or other cardiac symptoms beforehand, but that wouldn't necessarily drop my thresholds for doing the investigations I've talked about and for having a high index of suspicion of risk of
0: problems intraoperatively. Now we've already mentioned this, but could you help us clear up the MAGNET controversy? What what does a MAGNET actually do and what is the current recommendation
1: around this, but I think we're getting slightly more clearer guidance now on the role of magnets. To deal first with implantable cardioverter defibrillators, where the advice is pretty straightforward now, which is that in an urgent situation to deactivate an ICD, you can use a medical grade magnet placed over the device and held over the device, and it will inactivate all defibrillator functions on all common makes of ICDs provided, and there is only one caveat here, provided that that functionality had not been programmed out deliberately uh, by the cardiac physiologists, but it rarely is ever programmed out. So you should be able to deactivate in an urgent situation a magnet. And some of the manufacturers have as part of their box, they have an audible tone that emits when the ICD is being when you take the magnet off the device, then the defibrillator function should revert back to normal. But my advice would be that you still would get those boxes uh, interrogated and checked by cardiac physiologist at an early opportunity um, to just check that there has been nothing else interfered with, with, with functionality of the device. Um, the permanent pacemaker situation is slightly different and it slightly varies between manufacturers but pretty much all modern devices, if you place a magnet over them, will go into some form of asynchronous pacing mode, like a DOO mode or a VOO mode. Now, that can be useful in, in an emergency situation if you've got um, over-sensing and in, inappropriate inhibition of pacing, but, but does have potential theoretical risks of inappropriate delivery of pacing spikes with the potential for as kind of an R&T phenomenon, in other words, Uh, provoking malignant arrhythmias. I'd say that's probably more theoretical than a real risk, but it's one that is there, and Probably, I would not routinely be putting a, a magnet near a pacemaker unless I clearly understood how a particular pacemaker would respond, and I would want to be reassured the patient had effectively very little or no underlying rhythm.
0: Okay, I guess just for completeness, um, could you remind us of the important intraoperative and post op considerations of these devices, please?
1: Yes one that we've mentioned already is around the use of diathermy and if possible the use of bipolar rather than monopolar and diathermy. Uh, the reality of it is a lot of surgeons. Socials- on a diathermy for an adequate bleeding control and in that situation you really want to try and make sure that the pathway of current is well away from the defibrillator of the lead. So in other words you have your return electrode for the diathermy well away, maybe on a leg or something else, well away from the pacing box. Um, And you can anticipate as your as any diathermy gets closer towards the heart, then you're more likely to get electromagnetic interference. Um, The other considerations, um, one of the most important ones, I would say, is to have some form of backup system available. So that would usually uh, mean I would put external defibrillator pads on from the start of the procedure. And at the very least, know exactly where the external pacing device is. And most modern defibrillators appear to have an integrated external pacing device, but it's worth any anesthetist just double checking their own unit that they do have integrated external pacing abilities as well as defibrillator functions on their local defib. Uh, some of the books uh, talk about avoiding succinomethonium, which can cause fasciculations and therefore run the risk of oversensing again. Again, I think there's maybe slightly theoretical risk, but again, I'll certainly include in any um, textbook answer, and, and, and probably it's not a bad idea to avoid. Um, and in terms of post-operatively, the most important thing is to get the pacemaker rechecked uh, immediately afterwards, and if the patient has an ICD in that, um, that has been deactivated pre-operatively, that they are reactivated as soon as possible because of course all of those patients will have a, a clear indication for why they've got an icd which is that they've got a risk of malignant arrhythmias and you don't want to be sending your patient back to the ward if that function has not been reactivated hmm.
0: at the end of the paper there are some specific circumstances that you may not ordinarily think about um can you just briefly outline what they are for us please
1: there are certain procedures out there that just run a Slightly higher risk of causing problems when you've got some form of device. Radio frequency ablation is an example of that. Um, ECT is another one considered a bit of a risk for patients with ICDs where um, the combination of both the delivery of ECT and the subsequent convulsion can lead to the potential for inappropriate assumption that there's a ventricular arrhythmia that needs shocking. Other situations include um, the use of TENS machines where certainly for patients with ICDs in it is considered uh, contraindicated. Most diagnostic radiation is pretty safe. The ones that of course people think about are to do with magnetic resonance imaging. And I would advise real caution for anyone with an implantable device in an MRI setting. Finally, uh, radiation therapy usually is quite safe, but the advice is to not deliver radiotherapy directly over a device itself. And shockwave lithotripsy uh, may cause dysfunction of one of these devices.
0: Okay, that's lovely. So in 2011, the ASA and HRS published a consensus statement on this topic. Um, but certainly, so speaking to a few people preparing for this, it seems that the rules regarding this are a bit more relaxed. I was just wondering if there's any more recent publications or up- updates or anything new on the horizon that may back up this um, this view or what, what your opinion on this would be?
1: Yeah, I think, firstly, I think that ASA, um, HRS consensus statement, is very detailed and remains an excellent reference for this area. I think you're right that in the real world, the rules are sometimes rather more relaxed than they, they present in the consensus statement. To date, I'm not aware, and I spoke to a cardiology colleague about this as well, and we're not aware of any more recent formal consensus statements um, on the management of cardiac and part of electronic devices.
0: Um, do you have any take-home messages um, for our listeners at all, please?
1: I think we can all expect that we're going to see more and more patients presenting for all kinds of surgery with these kinds of devices in, and probably the most important consideration is what kind of device has been inserted, because that will help inform how an anaesthetist will approach any of these cases. One thing that that I think all of us should do and be able to do is just to know exactly where our uh, nearest external pacing device is and know how to use it so that if we are uh, faced with one of these patients, particularly in an emergency situation, we can deliver an alternative form of pacing in, in a reasonably timely manner. And I suppose the final thought is those patients with ICDs, as a general rule, you want to deactivate any defibrillator functions before exposing the patient to potential or, or actual electromagnetic interference. Um, and the the best and most appropriate way of doing that is to get the cardiac physiologist to come and reprogram the device, uh, to turn it off during the surgery and to turn it on again very swiftly after the surgery. But in an emergency situation, the, the application of a medical-grade magnet uh, can suffice to inactivate those defibrillator functions. But of course, in that situation, you need to be prepared Uh, and able to rapidly deliver an external
0: shock, should it be required. Mm -hmm. Um, Paul, that was a very informative and interesting podcast. I'm sure our listeners uh, will enjoy listening to that um, as I read your article um, as well. Thank you very much for your time and joining us today. Thank you. Thanks to Benj and Paul for a fascinating discussion of this increasingly common issue facing many anaesthetists. Make sure to have a look at Paul's paper as there are plenty of useful diagrams and images. This is available on the BJA Education website, as well as this month's November 2016 paper edition of BJA Education. Please join us again next month for the December 2016 BJA Education podcast, when Cliff will be talking to Dr. Will Tosh about cerebral oximetry. Remember, you can leave feedback about the podcast via the BJA Education website, and you can follow us on Twitter, at BJA Journals. Thank you for listening to the BJA Education Podcast.